You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Darby. Tony Deere, the golf writer, once described today's guest as the best golf course architect you've probably never heard of. Our guest today is Mike DeVries, who joins us from a snowy Traverse City in Michigan. He has fitted me in a few days before he is due to head back to the Seven Mile Beach Golf Course that he and Mike Clayton are building for Matthew Goggin in Hobart, Tasmania. Needless to say, we do get an update on the Seven Mile Beach project and what it's like to work at Clayton's. We also get an update on the Addington project and learn of a covert and unexpected visit by Mike DeVries to Dollymount last summer. We delve deep into Mike's back catalogue and chatting about his early influences at Crystal Downs in Michigan. The early days with Tom Doak and Tom Fazio and the faithful Mackenzie restoration that he undertook on behalf of the Meadow Club in California, not to mention the construction of Cape Wickham Golf Course on King Island, Australia. Along the way, he gives us an elevator pitch for golf in Michigan explains the advantages pertaining to both benevolent neglect from a golf course perspective and indeed benevolent dictators in the Stuart Patton guise. Finally, he goes deep on his golfing bucket list and provides us with plenty of suggestions for augmenting our golfing libraries. It was great to have Mike on. I'm very grateful to him for his time and we do hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Mike. You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. Thanks for having me. You do a great job. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Look, we've had Clates and we've had Punt. Now it's time to complete the triumvirate. It's great to have you on. I understand that I've managed to nab you just before you hightail it back to the Seven Mile Beach project in Tasmania. We will get on to a specific section of the episode devoted to uh, Matt Goggin and Seven Mile. But in advance of that, I would suspect that you must nearly be entering the final straight from a construction perspective. Would that be the case? Yeah, we've got uh, two holes to complete as far as grassing, you know, finishing irrigation, shaping, grassing and getting them, you know, so they're in the growing stage and things like that. Um, holes three and four in the routing, but that's the, those are the final two as far as just the construction sequencing. Excellent. This may then be the final piece before the masterpiece is finished off, or do you expect uh, further visits? Well, probably have to go back later in the year just for some touch-up stuff, you know, whether that's uh, bunker edging, grassing, you know, some final grassing tweaks here and there maybe. But as far as like big construction, main construction, certainly this is the the final sort of trip for that, yeah. So I suspect, and we will get on to the Cape Wickham project at King Island in a little while, but I suspect that the additional proximity to a city like Hobart probably recommends itself a little more than the relative isolation you must have experienced at Cape Wickham on King Island when you were there. Hobart's an amazing city and it's 200, 250,000 people, state capital, so it's connected to all of the Australian capitals as well as uh, they fly to Auckland, New Zealand a few times a week, so uh, it's technically an international airport, and so you get a lot more people coming in and out for a variety of reasons, because Hobart's 
just, you know, it's a fantastic place. Great food, museums, history, lots of, lots of great stuff. So, and the golf course is 10 minutes from the airport. So it's a, it's a very, nothing's easy in Australia for Americans because we're going halfway around the world. But, you know, thinking about that, it's very easy to get to. It's very accessible. And look, as I said, we will get on to Seven Mile and King Island in due course, but I think probably Crystal Downs seems to be the most logical starting position for today's conversation. You know, in preparation for today's recording, I was leafing through Joshua Pettit's McKenzie Reader to see what you had written about the good doctor's course design output in the U.S. Midwest. Two specific... Is this a test? <laughs> no, 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 no. Just two, two specific things jumped out at me just initially. Sure. I was reminded about the joy that Mackenzie's colored pencil drawings, golf holes, or, or routing illustrations engender. The sketches in question related to the 14th grain at Crystal Downs and the 36-hole routing drawing completed on behalf of Ohio State University. I was also intrigued to understand that Mackenzie was initially reluctant to visit the Crystal Downs site. However, once there, he was pleasantly surprised by the Duneland that bordered Lake Michigan. I too was surprised at June and bordering Lake Michigan. Is there much of it? And is there much golf on, on said dunes? Well, there's a lot of dunes. Um, and, and there's not very much on the dunes, you know, unfortunately. I mean, it's uh, just areas that are either remote. Crystal Downs is fairly remote. Um, or it's, you know, there isn't a large, you know, it's just not a huge population. Or it's difficult to do. The whole eastern side of Lake Michigan, which is probably 300, 350 miles long, um, the, you know, you have the southwesterly, westerly wind, so that tends to blow sand uh, and create big dunes on Michigan's side, um, less so on Wisconsin, where there's a bunch of sand in Wisconsin also, but it's not necessarily right on Lake Michigan. The Whistling Straits, the Straits course there, um, you know, that was... Um, that was, that sand was imported to that site because that was all flat clay farm field. So Pete died, you know, that's a totally man-made deal. I mean, it's pretty amazing what he did there. Whereas on the Michigan side, we do have a lot of dunes that are natural and of varying sizes and shapes and everything. It's big. There's Sleeping Bear National Lakeshore, which is just north of Crystal Downs, a few miles. And the lakeshore actually goes probably for... 60 or 80 miles up the coast and it's the it's the um 450 feet um at its peak above lake michigan so that's a pretty massive dune um and you know it's a phenomenal place and the site of crystal downs was actually two uh farms and the gentleman that founded the club walkley ewing he and his brother walked the western shore of Lake Michigan when they were teenagers in the early teens, 19 teens. And then as he got into the 20s and stuff, he was a developer. He lived in Grand Rapids and he was involved in real estate. And he remembered this amazing site when they came up over this bluff and um, on these farm fields and they had these views of Crystal Lake and Lake Michigan and basically what the backside of Sleeping Bear is as well as the Manitou Islands out in Lake Michigan. So it's a really unique junction of land and water and big dunes and, and ground that's really just totally compatible for a great golf. Um, and then 
on top of that, you bring in McKenzie and his partner Maxwell, Perry Maxwell, who was did the day-to-day construction. And um, you do that, and and you stick it up there, and it's a it's a sort of remote, unknown kind of thing for most of its life, most of the first sixty years of its life. Sort of lo- known locally and regionally as this really great golf course, and it's just sort of a sleepy little summer place. And you know, then it starts hitting the the ratings and now everybody's going there and so it's a lot different than it was when i was a kid i mean it's a lot busier and uh, you know that's good from the standpoint of people are seeing it but it's not like it was when i was a kid my cousin and i were you know i worked there and stuff so you know we'd go out saturday afternoon at two o'clock and front nine's wide open there's nobody playing it was just you know and we'd buzz around and you know we'd we'd play in no time um Two o'clock on Saturday afternoon, the whole front nine's full now. So no more, of course, no more, no more quick rounds in the afternoon. <laughs> no, no, and and of, of course you, you were fortunate insofar as, if I understand it correctly, your grandparents were members. Yeah, yes, they were. They I learned the game from my grandfather, and my grandmother played also. Uh, my grandfather played since he was a kid, and my uncle, my mom's uh, younger brother, she was the fourth of five kids, and he was only 20 years older than me and he was a scratch player and he was kind of the cool uncle that was always around and you know we were really close so when i was real little you know i had some sawed off clubs that i would hit in the yard and i just sort of fell in love with golf and it was this cool thing that i did with my my grandparents and my uncle and you know had a bond with them and uh played a little local nine hole course frankfurt golf club which no longer exists unfortunately uh, it was a great place because you i just got dropped off and someone would you know be there like me ready to play and i would hook up with other kids or an old couple or whoever and two hours later someone would pick me up my mom or my grandmother and and then when i got a little bit older i would i would follow my grandparents around and i would kind of you know, do whatever my uncle did where he landed near the green. I would put my ball and try and do what he did and, you know, cause he was really good. So it was kind of this, you know, it's just learning by, you know, trial by error and just, it was a great thing to do. And like going out with, you know, my grandmother or my grandfather and playing nine holes when I got a little bit older. And, and ultimately, um, when I was 12, we got a new pro Fred Muller came in and Fred was a really good player. And, you know, he was, only in his uh, mid late twenties at the time, so you know he was a pretty vibrant guy. And um, when I was fourteen, I started subbing in the bag room and um, in the pro shop, and you know, so I sort of filled in when they needed somebody. And then when I was fifteen, I was there full time, and um, so I started learning about golf in a different aspect of it. And then the next year after that, I started working on the grounds crew and. Um, by the time I was 17, we had a new superintendent that came in, like actually a real superintendent that was trained and stuff named Tom Mead. And he was a really excellent turf guy. And he was understanding about how you can do things more organically. You know, everyone talks about, you know, pesticide free and things like that. He was trying to do that 40 years ago. And, uh, wow. so I learned a lot about that. Yeah, you know, I was, and uh, started just working on the, on the grounds crew full time. Then didn't work in the pro shop for Fred anymore. In fact, Tom was like, "No, I need you on the golf course. Tell Fred he can't work for him anymore." <laughs> so, so I ended up um, doing that, and that was really. Uh, I list. I loved getting up early and you know mowing greens or cutting cups and 
raking bunkers and I was done in the middle of the afternoon to go play golf or go sailing or something or, you know, do other things. So it was a, it was a great thing just to sort of be there every day. And, you know, unbeknownst to that, I, you know, when I was 17 or 18, I was sort of like, wow, this is, this is a lot different than the little municipal golf course down the road, Frankfurt golf club or in grand rapids where I went to school. Um, in the you know the other part of the year and um that sort of you know that sort of sort of sparked an interest in that and that's what i kept returning to and that's kind of how i got into golf following on you would you graduated in business and obviously you ended up becoming someone that the writer tony Deere has described as the best golf course architect you've probably never heard of when did the penny drop with you that you might have a dose or have somewhere in your future well yeah i went to lake forest college which is a small liberal arts school and there were about 1,100 students at that time. And so I was a business major, but really I did all different kinds of stuff. I was uh, did a lot of math and science first couple of years. In the last couple of years, I did a lot of studio art and just had that sort of influence on me. And finished up, uh, worked for a large sporting goods retailer called Herman's, which I figured out in about four months that really their mission and mine weren't, weren't, weren't in the same path. For much longer and you know that was good and um i went back up to frankfurt because um my wife and i we were engaged and we were getting married and so we quit our jobs in chicago and everyone thought we were insane you know why are you getting married well I, this is the one and you know i went back to the golf course and and helped him out and then about two weeks after that talked to fred and said you know this is what i keep coming back to and he says well do you know tom doak and i say no who's that Tom was doing his first golf course, High Point, which is now being resurrected, High Point 2. Um, mm -hmm. And Tom Mead, my old boss at Crystal Downs, was the project manager there. He had left Crystal Downs, and he was building that with with Tom Doe. And so I, I, he said, you know, give me a call and go check it out. So I went over there and spent the day with, with Tom Doak and we went on our honeymoon and I came back and I started working for Tom and I worked for, for him for about two and a half, three years and finishing up high point, but not really working on the design there or anything. And then was on the ground at the beginning down at the Heathland course, um, at the legends complex in Myrtle beach, South Carolina, and then came back to Michigan where Tom's third course, the black forest, uh, which is in Gaylord, Michigan, sort of North central, um, kind of a hotbed for development back in the, in the eighties and nineties where there were a lot of resorts, um, and resort golf and stuff. Um, and so we, and I ran that project. And then after that, we didn't have another, we didn't have another project to go to. And that's when I went back to get my master's in landscape architecture and, uh, did that at the university of Michigan. And I understand you did a bit of freelancing work during your postgraduate studies and ended up then working for Tom Fazio for a while. I did. So when I finished up there during the master's, it's a full-time program, but in the summer times, um, there were other projects and things. And so, um, Mr. Fazio was, uh, he was designing a course in the Gaylord area again. And you know, that he was, you know, he was the hottest guy in the business. Really. You think about it, this is late eighties, early nineties. And one of the courses he did was it's called the Fazio course. But um, it was a massive development that was had a number of things. It initially started out with, with a course for uh, designed by Robert Trent Jones Sr. 
called treetops because it had this great undulation and elevation and you, know, you could see treetops forever from this one hole they had. Mr. Fazio was building the second course and again Tom Mead, my old boss, he was managing the project for the treetops owner and developer. And so I I did I did the the finish work and the grow in seeding of it and stuff for and teaching the superintendent how to do the grow in and that sort of led me, you know, meeting some of the guys from Fazio's organization. And when I finished my master's, they needed somebody on a couple different projects. And so I went and worked for Mr. Fazio first at the course up in, in upstate New York, or as you would kind of call it, but it's upper Westchester. Um, and that was a very complex project and involved me being there sort of on site helping coordinate everything with the construction uh, team. And then I did that again out west for a course out there near Vail, Colorado. And that, that was about maybe 15 months plus or minus. And then since then, I've been on my own and, and doing my own work. When did you first get exposed to big equipment, dozers and excavators and that sort of stuff or is that something that you had an opportunity to do back with with uh with tom made at crystal downs well no i was i mean i was on mowers and you know regular maintenance stuff a lot tractors and, mm -hmm. and things um but no the dozers and getting sort of into that that happened really initially with tom doak so when um when we went down to myrtle beach i was essentially sort of tom's associate on the project there and you know i had done lots of stuff but i'd never been on a dozer or anything and we had a little small d3 and tom was using that to build bunkers and and there were some the owner had he was he had bought a bunch of these um fiat alice fd30s uh which is a dozer that's like the size of a d8 and anybody that knows like you know they sort of like categorize size it's a really big dozer <laughs> And he had yeah. bought a bunch at auction, uh, you know, with the idea of fixing them up and flipping them and turning them and stuff. And so we just grabbed one of those one day. Tom said, here, I'll teach you how to run a bulldozer. And, and he's sitting in the cab there and telling me what to do kind of. And this thing has got this huge blade. And, you know, when you're first starting, you don't have any sort of feel to anything. And this thing is not a, it's, it's not a smooth, uh, it's not a, you know, it's not all the electro hydrostatic designs that they have now or what you're saying is it's a pretty crude weapon it's crude it's very crude it's a it's a large chisel <laughs> and when you make a mistake you move about 10 yards of dirt and just make this huge pile and you're bouncing all over and so anyway that's kind of i just you know I, he just said just mess around with this this hill of dirt here you know and and get a feel for the machine and then a couple of weeks later or something there was this small dozer that we had very tight but still an old dozer and he said, hey, you know, you want to try, you know, doing a couple bunkers. So I built a couple bunkers, um, you know, moved some dirt around, did that, you know, just real rough. It wasn't finished or anything like that. But that was kind of my first foray into that. And but I was really involved with doing other stuff. I was putting in drainage and and things on the um, on the on the on the project. So um, then when we went went up to the Black Forest, I was running the project and I wasn't really on equipment. A lot, but I occasionally when you know we have a rain day or something like that, I would get on a dozer and build stuff and um, 
just, you know, it's something that was sort of natural and it's fun. <laughs> In observing Graham Darcy of Dargolf Construction, who constructed the CDP bunkers at Royal Dublin, I was struck by how mesmerizing just watching the knuckle bucket and the excavator. It's almost like ballet with heavy machinery. I'm interested to understand how different bunker construction with a dozer versus bunker construction with an excavator and a knuckle bucket is. Like I can use excavators and things like that, but I'm not, that hasn't been my, uh, that's not my forte. Um, I'm just, you know, because I didn't, you know, 40 years ago, we didn't build things really with an excavator. Guys are, you know, sort of started, evolved into doing that and doing these real elaborate scapes and things like that. And I think there's a, there's a place for that, but also like with the dozer, you know, you need to tie everything in. Like if you just think of a, a, a standard bunker, if you have a flat piece of ground and you're going to build a bunker, you got to excavate, you got to like, you got to remove material, right? So there's a, mm-hmm. there's a vacuum, there's a, there's a space that you make from that. And what are you going to do with that material? So if you think about just digging a hole and putting a pile next to it, like you did as a kid, you know, pretty soon you get deep enough, the pile keeps falling into the hole, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can make really severe stuff, but you've got to get it to tie in and look like everything else or to fit to the landscape. And a dozer can do that a lot faster than an excavator can because it's working on a bigger scale and a bigger process. And that doesn't mean it can't be intimate or, you know, very precise. It just depends on the size of the dozer you're working. So if you're on that big old FD30, your bunker is going to be huge. But, um, you know, even with a small dozer, you can move, you can make big bunkers. And even if you have a medium-sized dozer, you can make small bunkers. It's just how you move dirt. So I think what, you know, what I really learned about um, was how, uh, you know, observing guys and z- observing really good operators and how they took material and flipped it over to create, you know, a plus and a minus. And the sum of those things together is more than equal to zero. I mean, it, you know, you can, you can make things better by doing it or tying it together and trying to make it look like it's always been there. And I find that's easier for me to do with a dozer because I can push the stuff that I don't want out of the way quicker. And then I can build a bigger landscape and tie that together. And in some cases, it depends on the situation. Um, And typically, like even though I can do 90% of the bunker with a dozer, post that, it's going to get down to doing some cleanup with an excavator, small excavator. Or, um, depending on the material and things like that, we can do that with a sand pro and with just a shovel and, you know, so there's still handwork that's involved. You still have to get in there and, you know, the final details are, um, but there are guys that are really, really good with the knuckle bucket. There's a guy, Sammy, I'll call out from Labar Golf. Sammy's been working on different projects with me for, you know, 15 plus years out in New York. And he was just a kid that... Um, was, you know, he was just really adept at using an excavator and he's not necessarily, you know, like someone wouldn't call him a shaper necessarily because he doesn't go out and do the whole thing, but he's like, 
he's restoring stuff and he's doing what the guy wants him to do. And he's been the best guy I've ever seen because I can like do the shape there and he can clean it up faster than anybody I've seen. And, and then if I go, Sammy, just take, you know, two more inches out, you know, make the bottom a little more. He's just like, bing, you know, and it's done. <laughs> so he saves me a lot of time on a sand pro with a shovel. Um, but you can do that stuff too. So just depends on the situation. It, it's, it's, yeah. there's a lot of talented guys out there. There's no doubt. And what size of, of equipment are you currently using down in Hobart? Uh, we have a, we've, we've had a D4 and a D5 down there. Um, so definitely on the smaller size. My preference is a, is a John Deere, uh, 450, like an old JD 450. It's just the right size for me to like create intricate detail and still be able to push a little bit of dirt. If you've got a place where you really need to push dirt, then, you know, then you want to get into a D7 or a a JD, you know, 650, 750, something that has some more power to like, you know, just, just move earth for a while. You know, you start with big stuff and then you just, you break it down, you get smaller and smaller and smaller until you're with the shovel and a rake. That's what you need. As I said, we will get on to Seven Mile Beach in in a little while, but I want to bring you back to the the Meadow Club, and obviously that's a, a McKenzie design from in California, I believe. Needless to say, with your background uh, in Crystal Downs, McKenzie and, and Maxwell, if I'm right, uh, you are currently the retained consulting gar- uh, course architect uh, at Meadow Club, and you carried out a faithful restoration between 1999 and 2005. I understand that prior to the restoration, current superintendent Sean Tully suggested that historically the club had poured gravy all over their golf course. What specifically was he referring to? Well, the interesting thing is, um, so that's the first, the Metal Club's first course that Mackenzie did in America. And uh, he built the course in 27. It opens in 29. Of course, you have the big crash in November of 29. And, you know, they don't have any money. This is kind of a remote back in the day from san francisco this was a thing where people went up there for the weekend you know they took a boat over and then you know somehow got up to the metal club so you think about the depression and world war ii the first 15 years of the of the club's existence they had minimal staff and um the greens that were really quite large like the fifth green was about 9500 square feet and it shrunk instantly to about 5,000 square feet. Um, you know, there were greens that were, you know, half the size of what they were originally because these guys were like, there's two guys out there. They're like, we don't have time to cut all that, you know, so we're just going to do this little easy flat area, right? And they sort of left out a bunch of the really cool stuff. And essentially, 70 years later, that's where the club was because post World War II, members played the golf course and you know it's this amazing place and setting um but there wasn't an appreciation for mckenzie's work and nobody really knew what the original design was intended kind of um the original uh founders were very clear about they didn't you know it's called meadow club for a reason it's a high mountain meadow and they were very clear that they didn't want trees planted but then when he passed away um there were some people and they're like, oh, well, we should, you know, we should plant some trees. And, you know, of course the nursery goes out of business and they start planting trees everywhere. (laughs) 
So that's the gravy, I think, that maybe Sean is referring to. But when I got there, um, Sean's predecessor, David Sexton, he had been there maybe maybe 10 years already. And David is a very organized guy, super organized. And they had done a bunker project, but all they did was really replace the sand where the bunker was. And, you know, it, it didn't take on any of the characteristics of Mackenzie. The, the bunkers had sort of deteriorated over the years and stuff. Um, and we had some documentation, not complete documentation. And that led us into, um, you know, really doing what they call the McKenzie signature program, which was to bring back things. So we brought back the greens, the bunkers, mowing patterns, and that was the bulk of the work. And then, um, since then, you know, I still consult with the club and we deal a lot with, with tree management because, you know, the amazing thing is trees grow three or 4% in, in mass every year. And we're talking about redwoods and Monterey pines that were planted there. So three or 4% of a 50 year old redwood is a good sized tree in the Midwest. <laughs> They're big trees and they cause big, big problems. So I, I was interested to hear as well that when you uh, lifted up the sod during work, you were able to find the original greens mix and where that was located. Yeah. So what we would do is I would mark, you know, where I felt the green was supposed to be. And when we cut that sod, because 100 years ago, they just sort of used the soil that they had there and they probably screened it better than they do normal things, you know, on the rest of the fairway or something. And we could see very clearly at the edge of the original green. It went from what was green to something that had small little pebbles in it. And when you cut something that's been maintained like that, those things start to show up. So if you had just took a core and you started to poke it and stuff, it wasn't like you were going to find like pure sand over here and then like native soil next to it. That's not really it. But that native material that they built the greens out of was just screened finer and didn't have those little rocks in it. So there were only uh-huh. about four spots where we were really off by more than six or 12 inches anywhere on that. And the second that we cut the sod where we looked at the expansion, we could know exactly where that was. So it's a very, very accurate restoration of what was there on day one, with the exception of the third green, which had been changed by the members in the 50s because of a structural issue. And in terms of the club's historical archive was that useful or did you have to augment that with further research and finding new sources of information regarding what was there historically in terms of both plans maybe and aerials? Uh, yeah, they had some. It was certainly wasn't comprehensive. Um, Thomas's book had drawings um, of a few of the holes in there. Still to this day, there is no original drawing from of the Meadow Club um, that Mackenzie did that, that we're aware of you know, for a full plan. The, again, the fortunate thing was, is they didn't do anything to the golf course. I, I call it benevolent neglect where mm-hmm. you didn't do anything. And in fact, that you didn't do anything means it's all still there in the ground. So that's why we can get the greens back out and be really, really quite accurate with where those perimeters were and, um, and find that we could find that in the dirt. So that was really quite exceptional. You know, tees, we've added, obviously, you add lots of tees over, over time. And, you know, you have different distances and things like that. And people have added back tees here and there for more length. Um, that's a different thing, though, than the, than the pure 
you know, green surface or, you know, the bunkers and getting the bunker. So we had some photographs and things that, that really showed us the detail in the bunkers and the bunkering a, a bit different than the sort of what people tend to think of Cape and Bay, Mackenzie bunkers. Um, there's all these sort of little nubs that, you know, kind of wave in and out almost like, you know, little jagged teeth. So it's a bit different style than, and I don't know, I don't know why that is. There's nothing written on that or why it would be like that. Maybe that's the influence of Robert Hunter and that being his first golf course. But I think it just was sort of particular to that place. And, you know, maybe it was the crew that was there building it. I don't know. Well, uh, we will get on to the Addington and Moira Fabes, but there appears to be commonalities between the Meadow Club and the Addington in London, as you say, benevolent neglect, <laughs> which can only be a good thing from an architectural perspective. Yeah, absolutely. It's confession time from this side of the Atlantic. I've yet to play golf in the United States, so therefore I haven't played golf in Michigan. Obviously, a couple of year golf courses, Grey Walls, Kingsley Club and the Mines come uh, well recommended, in addition to the likes of Belvedere, the Dunes Club, and uh, of course Crystal Downs slightly further up the, up the way. As you're a local, I wanted to tap into your knowledge base on Michigan golf. Perhaps you could give listeners a little elevator pitch for golf in your home state. Well, number one, there's a lot of it. Um, we have more public golf courses, I think, than any other state in the U.S. Um, and that ranges everything from high-end uh, resort courses down to the local mom-and-pop nine-holer that you know they built on their farm. There's a lot of really good ground here. There's really good sand. We've got a lot of water, obviously, with the Great Lakes. So... What happened, particularly sort of during the growth period, or even just back from that a little bit, a lot of times, you know, a family would be farming and they're accustomed to building stuff, maintaining crops and things. And they're they're sort of getting towards their retirement or whatever. And like someone doesn't want to be a farmer anymore. And, you know, they're not not really ready to sell. And all of a sudden they're like, well, let's make a golf course. You know, they got one down the road. We can build a golf course. So we've got a lot of great golf courses from things that are very inexpensive, you know, might be 15, 20, 30 bucks to play. It might not be um, world-class top 100 type stuff. But then on the other end of that spectrum, we've got a lot of really, you know, resort courses. I mentioned a couple of those that, you know, I worked at, the Treetops Complex up there, Boyne Mountain, Boyne Highlands. They have a number of golf courses involved with, with their deal. You know, you mentioned Belvedere, which is a really awesome semi-private club um, that's in Charlevoix, Michigan. And that's a William Watson design from, I think, 26 or 27. Um, maybe it's 24. But really, really cool green complexes and just a super fun place. Um, it's noted you know, primarily as a place that uh, Tom Watson played in the summers as a kid because his family used to come up here from Missouri. And it's also... Got some really, really excellent holes. The 16th being a short four that's noted by a lot of people as a great hole, and it is. But also, when you think about, there's a lot of private, really good private golf um, done by, Mackenzie only did um, did Crystal Downs and the Ann Arbor course for the University of Michigan, but Donald Ross, Willie Park Jr., you know, a lot of the older 
established architects came and, you know, did that. You got Colton Allison. Allison was actually based in the Penobscot building in Detroit for about 10 years. So down near Detroit, there's a lot of really good classic old golf courses that are, that are really, you know, fun to play. Now, some of those are very private, you know, that would include, you know, Oakland Hills and Franklin Hills and a bunch of other ones. Indian Wood is a, is a bit different deal. It's sort of semi, semi private. They've had some, I think there was a senior, was it a senior open, senior am, I think a ladies, ladies, um, senior open maybe was there, but it's a really wonderful piece of, piece of ground also. And, um, so there's some, there's a lot of really good stuff that you can, that you can get to and all ranges of expense, depending on what you want to do. And how long is the golf season, Mike and Mish? You were mentioning earlier on before we pressed record that you've uh, minus 10 Celsius outside and foot of snow. <laughs> so you're probably looking forward to getting back to Tasmania sharpish. Right now, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not the time to play. But on Christmas Day, I was in short sleeves and um, some friends, we were, we were over um, in Frankfurt. And um, these are old friends that grew up playing golf at crystal down so we just like we just played one club and we started like near the fifth tee and just played cross country all the way to the far end of the golf course at 14 and, and our way back it wasn't you know there's no pins in we're not hitting greens or anything it's just it's just going out for a hike and you know having a little jab with your buddies and um so there are people you can you know it's not always horrible but that wouldn't be typical the typical uh range you know would be early April into November. And it just depends on those shoulder seasons. We had a really late, you know, late fall this year. So there were a lot of places that were open in November and even into December, you know, public golf courses that, you know, they'd get a spat of weather and it's 50 degrees and there's plenty of golfers that want to go out and play. Michigan's very, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, we're all in the same sort of Northern belt where we're all under snow right now and it's sub-zero but as far as golf participation, they're some of the highest in the country. And they, people play a lot of golf, and they get a lot in um, in the time that they can. Because it's really ideal. It's an ideal time of year to play. The golfers in Ireland and the UK can be very fortunate that the Gulf Stream is, uh, is an operation because that's the very reason we don't have weather like you have. Although being at pretty similar latitude. So we can hopefully look forward to that for many, many years to come. Kamir, I wanted to take a look. We mentioned briefly Cape Wickham earlier on at the start. Just want to sort of tease out. It's a long way for a, a gentleman from Michigan to go to design a, a golf club. How did that, uh, that particular commission materialize? Well, um, this goes back uh, 2011 or... 12, I'm trying to remember exactly, but, um, Darius Oliver and I had known each other for a long time and he had mentioned something and he called me up and he said, you know, there's this thing over here and there's a gentleman that has found this property and I think, you know, you should see it. And, um, that was Andrew Purchase who was in the golf business and golf maintenance, uh, business, um, over in Australia. And he, he'd built a number of golf courses, high end um, golf courses, you know, um, throughout Asia, Australia, Middle East. Um, 
and he had seen the site at Cape Wickham. He was over there on holiday with his boys and a friend and his boys. They were surfing, really. He's a big surfer, and um, King Island's got great surf. And so they were over there, and they were kind of thinking about, oh, let's get a, you know, what about a, you know, a holiday place? Because it's a 40-minute flight from Melbourne. It's very close, um, real easy to get to, and, you know, kind of remote enough and just really chill and so he found a local guy and they were looking at properties and of course dave bowling the guy that was helping him said um oh you know what do you do it's oh well i build you know in the golf business oh you you got to see this property up here <laughs> and so he took him up to cape wickham and right away andrew just like wow this is like and he bought the property he's like well i this i don't know how it's going to happen but you know this this is like just way too cool and so he had uh an australian friend of his uh, that had worked on projects you know before an architect and he kind of did a quick routing and stuff and andrew didn't think it was you know it was using the potential of it and that's kind of when you know he had talked with darius and and darius said well you know it's a really complex site but i you know i think there's you know half a dozen guys that would really do this justice and you know it's it is remote, so it's hard to it's hard to make it profitable and all that. And Andrew didn't he had no idea who I was, you know. And he had he knew a bunch of the other guys on the list and he said, Well, you know, I've worked with him, I don't you know, you know, who's this guy? And so I went over on a basically, um, Andrew paid me for, you know, come over for a couple of weeks and to look at the property and try and, you know, solve a bunch of the issues. And so I did that and I basically, you know, figured out a routing, um, in that two weeks. And then there was a lot of work to do, you know, beyond that we had to, um, cause we, you were utilizing crown land all along the shore there and you, ha and you can do that. You can, you can provide a, you can put a development application in to utilize that. You just have to make a point for it and stuff. And right now it was just, you know, at that time it was just getting covered by, cows there and all they were doing is damaging it and so it's not necessarily they weren't necessarily doing you know any good to it so that took about a year to do and darius did a lot of that um working you know getting all that paperwork and stuff in order and stuff i wasn't even over there you know during that we kind of had the routing and knew where it wanted to go and andrew wasn't sure you know he, he didn't necessarily want to be a golf course owner and do all that you know on a day-to-day -day basis and that's, that's when he got Duncan Andrews involved, um, as a partner and Duncan became essentially the, you know, the first owner, but Andrew purchases the guy that found it and had the vision of like, this is like so unbelievable. We, we need to, you know, we need to build a golf course here. This is, this is really, really amazing. And it is, it's phenomenal. The geology of the site, I believe, is pretty spectacular as well. Sand-based, porous sand and limestone layer underneath, and then groundwater as well, just flowing beneath the surface. How unusual would the alignment of the planets in terms of sand, something that drains quite well and actually having water there, would that be common, if you like? Two examples here in Ireland that come to mind readily are Port Marnock Golf Club, which has sand and then a porous layer of rock. And I think Royal Port Rush as well. And I certainly know when the RNA lads come in to do their uh, 
firmness testing. They can't quite believe how much water can be thrown on the golf course and at the firmness levels are just off the charts. I can imagine it's pretty gets pretty firm in Cape Wickham as a result of the geology of the site. Yeah, it's um yeah, it's very firm and it's all fescue. Um so it's you know, through the greens and everything. So the texture and the playability of it's um really quite compatible and, and works out really well. So, you know, King Island's this rock. <laughs> And there's a bunch of different rock around there, but there is this limestone sort of underneath, and then there's sand on top of it. The whole western side of King Island is, um, again, the same kind of thing like we were talking about Lake Michigan. The winds are coming from, you know, from the west and southwest a lot. It comes from all directions at King Island, but um, it really can blow that way. And so that is pushed sand up onto that western side of the island. Um, in particular, and created a lot of dunes and, you know, big heaving, rolling landscapes there. And so there isn't a lot of water that, you know, there's not a massive river or something coming through there like you see in traditional links, but there's smaller, you know, buys water and there, there's water that goes through the sand and then hits this limestone thing. And then it tends to work its way towards the ocean. And so they devised a way to sort of capture that as well as there is a natural spring in the creek that comes down. And so we, we grab water from that and pump it to the site to utilize for the irrigation. It's the most diverse site that I've ever seen, you know, for a golf course, just because we have, um, we have, you know, dunes, we have cliff top areas, we have rock that, you know, it's just hanging and, you know, there's tees right up against it. The waves rush into the, into the rocks you've got victoria cove with the sandy beach you know it looks like the blue lagoon there <laughs> you know you just need brook shields out on the sand you know you're playing by it. and the 11th hole is basically in the ocean I'm, you know that's just really really phenomenal that you know it's this little sort of peninsula that kind of juts out there and um you know the waves just roll into it now that interesting thing there is that's a harder rock that's out there along that shoreline and makes all those cliffs and stuff. And it, it breaks the waves, the really big waves break out quite a bit further beyond the 10th hole and the 11th. And prior to us building anything, I, you know, when I was first there, I remember looking from about three or 400 yards away through the valley. That's the 10th hole, which is the short par four that goes down between those hills. And I was looking at these big waves crashing in. And there were three, there was a series of three waves and they're all breaking simultaneously. And I'm like, wow, those are really big. And I got down there and they were like 12 foot waves. <laughs> they were just crashing, but it doesn't crash into the shore. It crashes out and then it sort of blows in, in that particular area because of the way the rock formation is out in the water that takes all the energy and, uh -huh. and sucks it out. Um, so it's a really phenomenal, unusual piece of ground. It's on the list of places to visit the next time I go down there. I haven't, I have got a couple of mates who've, who've made it out. One that isn't particularly good on small planes. And I suppose the adventure or the, the, the travel adventure that is getting to King Island is via a small plane. So I suppose if, if you're that way inclined, maybe you might want to investigate whether there's a boat or something that can bring you instead. Honestly, the small planes are fine. I mean, I'm a good flyer, but I've, you know, I've never had a bad one in or out. And that's like the 10 seater, even a helicopter, uh, once, um, 
And then, you know, you have sort of, you know, 20 to 35 seaters um, that come in pretty regularly too. We don't have the big jets aren't coming in there. And that's a limitation of the runway um, the way it is right now. Well, as somebody that spent a significant amount of time on King Island, you're probably the best man to ask, how windy is it there? Recent dispatches from ranking people might have suggested that one of the reasons perhaps that the golf course fell out of the top 100 of golf magazines ranking list was because of the inclementness of the weather that's encountered well you're in ireland tell me how tell me how clement the weather is in ireland at times right well i'll give you an idea michael christmas eve playing in royal dublin on the 13th tee this has never happened to me anywhere else six club wind and the wind managed to blow the ball off the tee so uh, i can't imagine it's any more windy than that um well it does get very windy there but um you know i've seen it in all seasons and certainly it can be you know if you get one of those storms that comes through and, and hangs out for a few days you know that's not necessarily pleasant and if that's if that is the only time that you're there and you don't have any exposure to anything else, I think you'd be like, wow, this is just horrible, right? Well, you'd have that if you walked in and that was your one experience at Royal Dublin. If you came in and played Royal Dublin only, and that was your day and you left, and you never played anything else in Ireland, you'd probably be like, that's just horrible. Why would I ever go back there? I think that's the experience that some people have had. But but I've, um, you know, playing the golf course, I've played it... um, you know, consecutively on several days. And, and, um, I've played it in a gale force wind. I mean, literally, you know, it's, I used to windsurf, so I know what a gale force wind is. And, uh, it was completely playable. There's enough space. I lost one ball. I lost it off of the, it rolled off of the 18th green into the dune. And I was like, I'm just going to give that one to the gods. Cause I thought, you know, I made it all the way around. I probably could have found it, but that wouldn't necessarily be prudent. Um, and then, you know, the next day I had like, oh, a club and a half, maybe two clubs. And the next day it was a light zephyr. It wasn't even, wasn't even anything. Now, I'm also used to playing, Crystal Downs is pretty dang windy. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of wind comes across Lake Michigan and it can blow, you know, it can blow pretty hard from the north or the south at, at, at Crystal Downs. Um, so I'm, my game sort of adapted to that. I mean, people are always sort of shocked. The first time I went to Scotland and I, I arrived and I was paired up with three students from St. Andrews and, you know, I hit this low, well, I, I topped one into the burn on number one. <laughs> then after that, I hit this little chip and rod and it skirted and stopped, you know, and they were like, wow, that was, <laughs> they were sort of shocked. I did the same thing at the second hole. They're like, where'd you, where'd you learn how to do that? I say, well, I grew up, it's pretty windy too. My ball flight's low, you know, just by, so, you know, maybe I'm accustomed to that, but, um, there's, um, you know, as an example, like during construction, the winter can be, you know, quite, you know, I mean, it's, it's cooler, but it's not, it's not winter. Like we think of in Michigan, right? I got a foot of snow outside right now. Um, and, um, we had, like really pretty good weather and it turned into august and all of a sudden we had three weeks that were you know for the most part were pretty bad 
Um, you know, we could still do construction and things like that. That's not, but it wasn't pleasant weather. There was more heavy rain and more wind than sort of we had been experiencing. And all of a sudden that ended and the next six days were glorious. They were 55, 60 degrees, minimal wind. I mean, this is in the heart of winter. Like it's supposed to be really bad and unplayable. And, you know, if you hit that in the middle of winter, I mean, it was fantastic. And that's the interesting thing about Tassie is it's a maritime climate. So it's never too hot and never too cold. Um, Every time Clates would come down to Hobart in the winter, he'd be like, oh, it's horrible in Melbourne today. (laughs) Comes down here, he's like, wow, this is pretty nice. He's looking around. He's like, the sun's out. There's no wind. He's like, he's like, what's going on? So I go, it's a normal day in Hobart. So, um, um, I think, um, I think part of the problem is, is like I was saying, if you, you know, if you went and played Royal Dublin on only on Christmas day and then you left and never came back, you'd think, well, that's just terrible. That's like totally inhospitable. And if you did that at King Island, you'd do that too. But like, if you come to, you're making a golf trip. And you go and, um, and you only go to King Island for one day and you get bad weather on that day. And then you're up in the sand belt and it's like pretty decent. You might get some windy. If you're going to go to the sand belt, you're going to be there for about a week. A lot of guys are there for about a week because there's a lot to do in the sand belt itself down the Mornington Peninsula. It blows hard in the Mornington Peninsula. It blows really hard because it's coming right through the Bass Strait. Same deal. So, um, is it as violent as King Island? I, I don't know. I haven't spent enough time, you know, continuously in the morning to potential on that, but I've been down there where it's been blowing hard. I wouldn't say it's unplayable, but it's, it's not necessarily pleasant, you know, on certain days. So I think, it, I think it's, I think it's, um, getting a bit, people are giving that a bad rap and saying it's unplayable. And that's just not true. Some guy put up, I can't remember. He put up some weather data and stuff, you know, because someone said, well, you know, it's a gale force. It averages a gale force wind. And that's just ridiculous. That's not true at all. From one exceptional site in King Island to another, uh, the Addington in London, I was lucky to get an invite from Ryan Nodes for a course tour back in August while in London. Uh, I'm sure many listeners to the show would have been keeping tabs on the work uh, at Shirley Church Road since the project started. In a city with some exceptional sites for golf, and for those that haven't seen the site, or indeed seen the pictures, how would you describe the site and the golf course that's currently in the process of meticulous reinstatement? Uh, It's eccentric. You know, when you think about, it's got sort of more elevation, more hilly aspects than a lot of other areas around um, London. Um, and, you know, it's had sort of this, it had this eccentric owner for a number of years um, that was, you know, sort of didn't do anything. So there was this benevolent neglect, as we talked about before. And um, I think the thing is, is that, you know, there's this, there's this contrast of things where you have these, um, some flatter, um, more broad, uh, landscapes. Then you've got these sort of big hills you go up and over or these deep ravines. And hence there's all these bridges that sort of make the walk a bit more palatable because of that. Um, and because of the elevation, 
you also have the, now that we've peeled back the trees that had grown for 80 years, uh, sort of un, untended, um, now you can see downtown London again, which is really incredible, just spectacular. You know, you see the spire, you see, um, you see the various sections of, of London from, you know, several places on the golf course, which is really quite spectacular. And, um, and it's an unusual soil. Um, it's a, it's a sort of a shaley, um, rocky soil underneath. So it drains really well, um, and sheds water really well, but, um, it doesn't have a lot of topsoil, which is challenging at times <laughs> for growing grass. Ryan notes must almost be the ideal client. Discuss. <laughs> Ryan's awesome. He's super, super excited about, um, you know, taking, taking the Eddington back to what, it, what it was and reclaiming things. Um, he's a very good, he's a very good player. Um, he's well studied and it's always good to have, you know, essentially, you know, a dictator or, you know, one person that you're dealing with versus, um, a committee or 300 members that are all trying to, you know, think that they know about this or that when in reality they know their game, but they don't really have perspective, nothing against golfers or people on committees or anything, but they have a perspective that usually is very narrow and not necessarily as broad as it needs to be. And certainly you know, we all have our prejudices. Um, I think that's, um, that's one of the good things about, you know, the partnership with Frank and Clates is that we all come to, you know, this business from different backgrounds and experiences and, and level of play and things. Obviously, Clates, you know, played the European tour for 15 plus years and Australia Asian tours for 30. And, you know, he's a great player and he understands the game on a, on a different level than say Frank or I do in regards to that. Um, and I think, you know, the combination of those types of things helps, um, helps us understand and provide input to things that we we're going for the same goal and we're trying to find the same thing. And Ryan's looking for that also. So, um, Ryan being a very good player though, too, um, he, you know, but being a course owner and manager, he knows that he needs to accommodate, you know, the average guy also, even if his perspective maybe isn't as, as specific as maybe Frank's and Clayton's and mine is with regards to that. So it's a really good combination of, um, having a, a great owner wants to do the right thing is involved and wants to discuss, um, but is taking, you know, is taking advice and, and processing that and, you know, letting us do our, do our thing. So a significant portion of the restoration process pertains to vegetation management and obviously bunker renovation, which I know Connor Walsh, um, and your arborists are, are addressing as, uh, as the months tick by you have undertaken a few cameo construction visits thus far to the Ellington. I believe the first job may have been a practice chipping green, which I'm pretty sure 
incorporated an old wartime air raid shelter. And indeed, the fruits of your labour were in evidence last August with the new Part 3 with the devilish green fantastic internal sections with precipitous drop-offs but to, to, to the rear what can you tell us about particularly that new part three that you've 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 reinstated so it's a it was an original green um we don't know if it was an alternate green or if it was the original green for the 12th hole the famous 12th hole which is the big they call it a long four or short five however um that goes down and then comes back up and this green was to the left as you're playing the 12th hole was to the left of that and basically it was abandoned early on we don't know exactly we don't know the history of that um but it was evident in this old old photograph from the opening of the golf course and that had just been treed um in forest for the last you know 100 years and um we found that in in the in the forest and like wow, this looks like this is the green platform and this is the knob that you could see in that photograph and all that. So um, we we cleared that area off and um, instead of using it for the 12th hole, Frank came up with the idea of what if we make a par three after the existing ninth hole down to this, we can use it as an alternate 19th hole um, you know, in case we're working on another hole or as an alternate routing, because what we could do then also is we could make the 10th, which is a short medium four, uh, into a par five, into a short five. We could provide some variety to the golf course. And, um, so, um, Ryan was real excited about that. He thought that was, you know, that was quite interesting. Um, the original clubhouse routing and the original routing of the golf course was supposed to start at the fifth hole, not at the current uphill first, which is a you know a par uphill par three for the first hole. It is a very unusual um, opening, but the thirty six holes that that the Addington had, um, uh, there was another thirty six across the road or another eighteen, excuse me, across the road during World War Two. That got overtaken by the British government for um, housing and things. And so the clubhouse, its location where it is now, was not really the first intended clubhouse location. Um, and Ryan is, um, you know, he's looking at the potential of how we could restore the original clubhouse location and the routing. And that might actually um, make this alternate par three something that's an interesting alternative loop that's in the middle of the round and then gives some variety to the 10th hole too as a par five, which plays actually quite well as a par five. It's, it's, it's quite interesting um, in the train there. So it's a part of it was sort of discovery and trying to reclaim that and then adjusting it a little bit. But the sort of the whole complex is, is very close to you know what was there. The drop-off to the back right was there in that hollow. Um, and the big valley that's um, between the tee and the green, um, that was all there. Um, you know, so it was, um, it, was, it was a really fun, fun project. And, and I think it's going to be, I think people are going to be excited about it because it's a different change of pace. 
You know, you mentioned the, the, the views of London earlier on from the Addington at the top of the hill there. Um, and I was I, I was struck by, by those panoramic views of, of Wembley Stadium and, and the Shard, as you said, and the Millennium Dome and that iconic backdrop of the greater London skyline. How important do you consider these non-golf elements uh, to be in supporting, you know, great golf? So the non uh, obviously, this is uh, the views are uh, are long views or are views of the the general vicinity. You, you can't golf on them, but they obviously uh, augment or certainly aid the the feeling, certainly or the the connection with a great golf course to its its, its hinterland and its surrounds. Yeah, I think it's a uh, in in this case uh, having the views of London, you know, one of the great cities of the world, and all the history that's there. Um, that gives you a sort of a sense of place. So, because everything around the Addington is fairly, you know, it's pretty rural, uh, a lot of it. And there's, and what the uh, second golf course was is now, uh, you know, it's, it's parkland. Um, there's trails through there and things like that, but, um, there's no development over there. So it's, a, it's got a very rural feel to it. And you have views, um, north to london but also you have view south because of the ridge that you're on so i think i think those are important things that give you perspective on your the golf course's sense of place of where it is and and the bigger landscape around it um some cases um those elements are things that you use on the golf course as targets or or you know um guideposts you think about that in you know, if you're at St. Andrews, you know, you can, you can take note on a church spire or whatever, or think about how that is. And, you know, particularly when you're in a place where it's blind and, you know, those are things you only get to know over time. In that, in that case, uh, we talked about Cape Wickham before. And so the lighthouse, it's a hundred and it's 48 meters, 157 feet tall. Um, and you can see the lighthouse from every hole on the golf course. Sometimes it's not right in your face, but, um, you know, it becomes really evident when you get on the fourth tee and you see the top half of the, of the lighthouse sort of on the left side of the fairway and it's a guidepost. So things like that, that's much closer than say London is, but I think those types of things are, are important. You don't have to do it all the time though. I mean, I think if you have these high points, like at the Addington, you're looking at it from up where where the fifth tee is where the clubhouse originally was going to be you'd have that view so you could sit out on the patio and you could be you know enjoying the immediate surrounds environs that you have with the golf course but then you'd also have the perspective of london in the distance and that's got to be really different too if you think about that in the evening when the lights are coming on in london and you're sort of in this rural area but you're seeing that in the distance that would be a really spectacular sort of feeling also so it's it adds to the golf. It's not necessary, but it adds to the ambience of a place of the of the club. You know, the the recurring theme in in terms of these topics is great sites, and we're now going to get on to Seven Mile Beach, um, the job that you're you're currently doing for Matthew Goggin down there. Um, he strikes me as somebody that's cut off a similar similar piece of cloth to Mister Nodes. Would that be uh, Would that be fair? Um. Yeah, he's, um, Matt's an unbelievable guy. He's, um, well, he was a great player. He was a top 50 player in the world 
um, you know, uh, people, the 2009, the interesting thing is the 2009 um, Open that Tom Watson almost won at 59. Matt was his, you know, his playing partner in the final twosome. And on the 13th tee, Matt was, you know, he was, he was right there. You know, he was tied for the lead. And, you know, I'm sure he would like a couple shots back here and there, you know, and have an opportunity. But, um, um, you know, he understands the game on another level, uh, which is really cool. Uh, he grew up in Hobart. Um, so he has a great, uh, passion for uh, Tassie, for Hobart, you know, his, his former home, even though he lives in the States and has been in the States for the last 20 years or so. Uh, and um, he he understands golf. He understands, he's also not an architect, so he's very involved, but he's he lets us do what we need to do. Um, and um, he does that with everything that's involved with the project, which is really, um, quite amazing. I think, um, he shows a lot of perspective on that. You know, you've got, and he's, he's known Clates for a long, long time. And, you know, me for less, you know, only, a, only a few years for me. Um, but he knows how passionate I am and Clates is and, and that we're, we look at this as this really unique opportunity and um, working with him on it and stuff is really phenomenal. So, um, I, you know, I can't say enough good things about him. I've been very fortunate to have, you know, good owners, you know, throughout my career. Um, Matt's right up there with, with the best of them. And um, he's, uh, he's, he's um, a guy that's really passionate about golf and what it can do for kids. You know, he's going to have this, you know, this driving range is going to be, you know, have at it, kids. You know, here's, here's, here's four bags of balls. You know, go learn the game. You know, go, go do this. Go chip and putt. You know, he wants it to be that kind of place. That's really, there aren't many, there aren't many owners, much, much less, uh, you know, that are going to allow that. You know, that's, that's a really cool thing, I think. I think he's he, he seems to be trying to build a real legacy and I guess a, a community resource offering career paths and paths to the sport, which is just, you know, so, as you say, quite unique. It is. Um, you know, the grow the game mantra, um, Matt, I mean, he's really doing that. You know, he's he's not a, you know, he's not a billionaire that's building this, you know, he wants to build a great golf course and he wants to have a great place for people to go. But, you know, for him, it's also about um, giving Tassie kids an opportunity to go and play and learn the game and, and, and do things. And how can that be, how can that be positive on people's lives? Even if they don't end up being professional golfers or going on to even high level amateur play or whatever, like he did before he became a pro, but it's, it's giving them, this thing and that's you know golf is this very social game we we sort of lose track of that and and i think that's you know one of the great things about it i mean you go out with your mates and and you know you give each other a hard time and you know you know when they three putt it you give them <laughs> you know hey nice jab there or something you know you you know you know it's all about having a little bit of fun right and um but at the same token you go places and and you run into people, oh, you're a golfer, you know, you see a crest on their shirt or, or whatever, 
And, uh, you know, it immediately starts a conversation and you, and all of a sudden you have this common bond, right? Oh, you're a golfer. You're a nut like me. Okay, good. (laughs) So, um, you know, we, I think we lose track of that a lot of times, you know, it's supposed to be about having fun. It's not always about just punishing you. Like, you know, not every hole is supposed to be totally brutal, but you know, you got to be able to figure out kind of the puzzle and if you do then you end up having more fun with it right especially if your friend yeah that you're playing yeah. with and is your opponent that day hasn't figured out the secret to that hole <laughs> well it, it sounds like keeping tabs on uh, both uh, mr pont and mr clayton that uh, your fellow partner other than adding a couple of uh, couple of additional tees and alternate teeing areas and maybe alternate pars i suppose what i'm getting at is how are you enjoying working with mr clayton on on the seven mile project oh it's um it's awesome cuz you know i'm there every day and um clays would be down there every other week for 2 3 days and you know when you're away and things are happening and you're moving, you know, sand to fix this or that, or build a green or tea or, um, and you come back and you haven't seen it for two weeks. It's like when you leave your kid, when, when they're three years old, well, they, you know, you leave them for two days and all of a sudden you come back, they look totally different. They've done something that like, what, how'd I miss that? You know? Um, and so that's great because Clates comes in with, a similar philosophy, but looking at things from a different perspective. And then he goes, you know, I tell him about, you know, okay, I've been doing this, this, and, you know, I changed that, you know, what we talked about last time. He goes, oh, I like that. You know, what about this? And, you know, and so he always is bringing in something that I didn't actually, you know, necessarily see, and that's helpful. Um, And I think the thing is, is that what we're trying to do is we're trying to get to the pinnacle and we're working with each other to, you know, just incrementally get a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And so having that, having the time that we've had on this project, um, to do that because we have a small crew and, you know, the builds, um, you know, taken a bit longer and stuff, um, for a variety of other, you know, the end of COVID and all this other stuff, um, that's been helpful and it helps, it's helped the golf course to evolve. Not only does not only does Clates find a zillion other tees <laughs> for alternate shots, but sometimes I would just totally, you know, I would just dismiss that. I'd be like, it's a bad transition, doesn't we're not walking over there, that doesn't work. We gotta get a year no, we're not doing that. Come on, focus on this. <laughs> and then, you know, and then, you know, it might be that we keep looking at that. He keeps walking to the same spot or something. And um that happened that happened on the um the transition uh, alternate T for number nine. And it was always out of the way and there was a big gully there and stuff. And what happened is, is the second green there, um, which was the original green, it ultimately started to shift a bit to the left for other reasons, not related to this T. And so when that happened, all of a sudden I built the T and Clates came back and I go, you got your T. <laughs> He immediately went over and he that started. Was one for him. He started yeah, like yeah. swinging this imaginary <laughs> stick in his hand, and he goes, "Oh, this looks good. Yeah, I like this. This is yeah. I like you yeah. can't see much there. That's good. 
know, so it's happy as a pig and shit. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes things just work out, but you know, as they should, you know, it just takes time. Yeah. Yeah. It grew, it grew on you and then you built it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Come here. I believe you've had some water issues during growing. Uh, poor old Anthony Toogood and his growing team have been uh, presumably pulling their hair out. Has that been rectified, or have you had a have you had some more? Because I know Hobart's a very very dry place just in general in terms of rainfall. Yeah, it's you know surprisingly when you think about Tassie and um, everybody thinks it's cold and wet down there if they're in if they're in Australia proper. Um, and it's not. It's a maritime climate, so it's very moderate. But uh, there's a lot of variety on the island. The southwest portion of the island, which is basically, you know, uninhabited, um, and not there's no roads leading into it or anything. That's that's all protected world heritage and you know national parks and things like that. Um, that whole section of the island is is really close to temperate rainforest. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, but then the mountains just west of Hobart, uh, Mount Wellington being the one right above the city at 4,200 feet, um, that's just this big rain shadow then for Hobart. So Hobart's the second driest capital in Australia behind Adelaide, which is really unusual. Uh, you wouldn't think of that. And we're a little bit east of that where the airport and, and, and the golf course is. So we're a little bit even more in the rain shadow. And for whatever reason, um, it's very dry there. There's a lot of groundwater, uh, and that's where our that's where our irrigation's coming from. Uh, but the ways that we have to get that groundwater up is a bit complicated because um, we don't have power out there yet, so we have to use these big generators. Um, and we have a dam that we can fill, you know, and put water in that we can draw the irrigation out of. So it's com- it's it's complicated. Um, it's a little cumbersome because we don't have full power there yet. That's in process. Um, it's just, it takes time. And some of that is a result of just bureaucracy. And some of that's, well, it's, you know, COVID and things just don't move as fast. Um, and it's, there's only 500,000 people in Tassie. So it's a smaller environment. It's not like Sydney or Melbourne where there's five or 6 million people and everything's right there and and you know you can get a guy to do it and you know get something to happen so um so the ultimate long-term solution is that um we get a recycled water line there which is what royal holbert has um and the other golf courses that are near the airport um and but that that takes time to get it there and it's a um so that that that's going to be the um that's going to be the best solution for it. In the meantime, we're, you know, we're dealing with big pumps and generators and things to like, you know, to get our water and, and do that for the time being. Um, it's also a bonus though, too. Um, you know, once the golf course is established, um, we have this dry, beautiful weather. Um, even in the, even the winter, uh, which tends to be, um, a bit less wind down there in Hobart. Um, and we get wind, but not, it's not, crazy wind like you'd see on the straits up at Barnbugle or Wickham or at the Morning Peninsula. Um, what you see is um, um, it'd be, it might be cold, even if it's like near zero degrees Celsius or, you know, two degrees Celsius, like first thing in the morning. By 930, 
it's clear blue sky, sun's out, um, and it's, you know, 12, 15, 16 degrees Celsius. And, you know, it, it feels like it's 25 though, because there's like no wind. And so, I mean, almost every day of the year, it's going to be golfable in Hobart at seven mile. I mean, it's really phenomenal. It's better than people think. Um, earlier in the project, I understand that you were um, holding some bulldozer masterclasses for Lucas Michel and Jurian van der Vaart. I've also heard that Lucas may now be putting that skill set to the test in uh, somebody's back garden not too far away from Melbourne. What sort of studies were they? I believe you're a very good teacher, first of all, but what sort of studies were they in terms of how quickly did they pick up the um, the, the main skills of coordination and, and, and the bulldozer becoming an extension of their hands and feet? Well, it takes, it takes time. And you, um, you know, when you're, like neither of them really grew up on equipment and stuff like that. So it's not, for some people, it's more translatable. You know, I'd been I'd been involved with tractors and mowers and things like that for a long time and sort of accustomed to that type of thing before I got on, you know, bigger, heavier equipment. So it takes a little bit of time. Some people are more adept than others are, obviously. Um, um, but I've got a sharp whip. I can get, get the boys moving. Um, but they're, uh, you know, it was, it's more than just part of it's like learning to use, learning to use the tool, right? So whether it's a bulldozer, a rake, a shovel, an excavator, um, you know, a skid steer, which is a small little, you know, the small little, some people call them bobcat buckets, things like that. Um, any of those types of equipment, it, you know, your time in the seat is really valuable for learning how to do stuff. And, um, and so a lot of it would be like, Hey, we just got to go push garbage there. We need to, we need to smooth out the road. You know, you got to go work on the road and make it smooth. You know, you just got to work at it. So it's hard work. It's, 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 it takes a time. It takes time to do that. Um, my son came over for a few months and worked and worked with me too. Um, and, um, you know, he's been around, he's seen this, you know, he's been around it a lot and stuff like that, but he never like worked on a construction project like this, uh, with me before. And, um, you know, he was like, oh, this is really frustrating when you first got, this. <laughs> you know, when you move the blade just a little bit wrong, it's like, you know, and then you, then you start getting this washboard up and down sort of effect, you know, and it's like, oh, how do I fix that? I was like, well, you just, you got to work at it. You got to do a little bit, a little bit, and then you know, you got to work it out a little bit more. So, um, it's, it's good when you can have them there. It's not just theory, but when you, you know, when they go through stuff, what you do is you try and, okay, okay. You're getting a handle on what the, what you can do with the tool. Okay. Now you have to think about the bigger picture and, and what's happening, not just what's right in front of you, but how does that connect and interact with that bunker, that green, that hillside, that dune. That's not even on the golf hole, Mike. Why are we, why are we looking at that? Because that's all important because it's still on the site and it's still something that's, that's prevalent in our vision or the purview of somebody who's standing there and just sort of enjoying the, the environment that 
they're in while their opponent or their playing partner's hitting or something, you know, and they're not paying attention to him. They're just like, wow, that's, you know, there's a lot of opportunity on these spectacular ocean sites. I mean, that's the incredible thing is, is how different is that? And not that every place you should be sitting there and just going, wow, wow, wow. You can't have that. You have to have this rhythm and flow to the site and you have to be prescient to that, um, you know, the environs that you're in, but you also need to be able to, um, have the sort of wherewithal to observe that. And a lot of golfers don't, if they're just, if they're just, I'm only worried about my game and only worry about trying to make birdie or par or whatever. And they lose sight of that. And that doesn't necessarily mean only at seven mile or, or some other spectacular golf course, but other places you can go to a, a golf course. That's a tree lined, you know, urban golf course. And, um, it's, it's one of the things, um, like if you go to like Donald Ross golf course, he was really good at, um, building golf courses that are constantly interesting every day. You could play for the rest of your life and enjoy that and have a really good round and stuff. But it's not necessarily jumping out at you. It's something that is just this very pleasant experience. And the thing that I find that's real interesting with his better golf courses, there's all these level, in, like any great architect, there's all these nuanced levels of you know, information that you can learn and you can't totally satiate your appreciation for that hole or that, that architect or that golf course, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the things that I got that I learned at Crystal Downs growing up, you know, whether it was playing there, working on the golf course, working in the pro shop, sledding off the first tee with my kids on New Year's Day, you know, in the snow. I was always seeing something different on the golf course because um, there's so many just levels of, you know, bits of information. You're never totally satiated. I've been there thousands of days. I still see stuff every time I go out there. Those great golf courses have that. You know, the, the members at Royal Dublin were the beneficiaries of a council connection, I think, to the USA of yours back on Captain's Day in June 2023. Your whistle-stop tour of the golf course didn't go unnoticed. Some days later, I was having lunch with a pal of mine, Cahill Connerty, who was, who was telling me a story. He never guessed what happened. I was out, on, out playing Captain's Day last Saturday, and there was some dude walking around the place with glasses and a pair of jeans on. He thought you were some sort of interloper. Anyway, obviously you were there, I think, as you were connecting through Dublin. I think the flight got cancelled or, or certainly delayed anyway. And uh, we were very happy to welcome you down there. I, I, know, I know you met, you met with Adam Hammond, our superintendent, and Jeff Allen, our general manager. So you were there pre predominantly to check out the recently completed bunker renovation. I'm just wondering what you encountered on your walkabout. I believe you were following players and seeing how they were getting on and whether they were avoiding the strategically placed bunkers or, or, or not and finding enough rope to hang themselves. But what did you find on your walk around on Dolly Mint? I think it was the first time you'd been there. Is that right? It is the first time I was there. Yeah, I was. Um, it, it's just, um, you know, um, good circumstance that, you know, I, I did. I had a 
hiccup getting back from London and Amsterdam. And, you know, I, I missed a flight because of, you know, whatever. And so I was in, I was in Dublin overnight and the, the next flight out was, you know, mid late afternoon or something. So, you know, I just immediately said, well, oh, I could, I could go see Royal Dublin and I've never seen this. And Frank and Hendrick had been doing all this work and Clates had been there before. And of course he'd, he'd been there, you know, through the years and stuff like that. So yeah, everybody was very, very welcoming. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, it was this, you know, captain's day. So it was kind of this special day and I'm just, you know, I, I don't have any clubs. I'm just, yeah, I'm making my way about. And it's funny because, you know, there was no, like this guy's going to be coming around and, you know, he's not going to get in your way or whatever. And people always, they respond differently, obviously. Um, someone might be really intent on their, on their game and they don't want any distractions or whatever. And I don't think I'm really distracting. I mean, I'm, I, I know how to stay out of people's way. I know, you know, whatever to do and sort of in between shots and I can sort of get ahead and, you know, so I'm not following the same group for eight holes. You know, that's, that's always not good. Particularly, uh, sometimes the ladies get very, very upset. They don't want anybody to watch them. But, um, this one time I, I, I think I was on, um, uh, 13 or 14, uh, is, is it 12 or is it 13 that has the water right in front of the green, the, the, the little, that's ten. That's ten. That's ten, or it could be fourteen. 14 yeah. So it's uh, ten. Ten is index one. The par four from the yeah. So f fourteen is the one you're talking about. Yeah. The, ra the raised tee with the think, yeah. Well, it was it was one or the other. But anyway, and so I was kind of between these two groups, and and they were one guy. You know, he was he was going to lay up, and so I was. I kind of like didn't get far enough ahead, but I didn't want to like rush people that were still working around the green and stuff. And then he was kind of, uh -huh. he was sort of, and there was nobody behind him. They were, they were, they were kind of, they were playing pretty rapidly and everything. And, uh, he was, he was sort of, and I was just gave him the wave and it's like, yep, I'm getting out of your way. Sorry. But everybody's very friendly. Um, <laughs> uh, Oh, it's six, how many, six years ago or so I took a, I, you know, I like to do these trips sometimes where I just, I go off season. So I went to Ireland in April, in April, five or six years ago, pre COVID, you know, I went by myself, you know, I didn't, my wife wasn't even with me. I was over there for 18 days. I visited, I don't know, 30 or 35 courses or whatever, basically did a loop around. Cause I just want to, I just want to look at, at golf courses and it's early season. So there's golf going on, but it's not super busy. It's not the high season when everybody's, you know, trying to get in and out and things like that. And I'd play golf, but a lot of times I just walk golf courses. And, um, the funny thing is, is, um, you know, I, I travel a lot and you always run into people and traveling is difficult nowadays. And, um, but I swear the second that I landed until the second that I left Ireland on that trip, I didn't have one bad experience with an Irish person. Not one. I didn't run into anybody even having a marginal day that was sort of grumpy. Everybody was like, oh, how are you doing? They're very welcoming. And, you know, the ultimate sort of example of that was I got into Portrush and went to Harbor Bar 
course to get a pint. Oh, you, you have to. You have to. That's just a, that's God, what, just what you do when you I go mean, to the pork taps lunch. only this long. It comes out nice and uh-huh. practically curdling out. And um, and I hadn't made any because um, it's early season. I hadn't. I didn't know exactly when I was going to get to Port Rush if I was you know stuck on something. And so I hadn't made any reservation anywhere. I figured I'll just find a place. And I so I asked the bartender and I said, you know can you recommend a place? Cause you know, I'm just here for the evening and, um, you know, I'll be around, you know, tomorrow and then I'm going to be making my way. And, um, he said, ah, oh, you know, it, he's thinking I want the full Irish and all that breakfast. And yeah. I'm like, I, you know, I just need a, I just need a bed to sleep in. He says, Oh, I think, you know, so-and-so I think she's, but I don't, you know, I don't think she's, I don't think she's has breakfast. I'm like, that's fine. No problem. He calls up. She says, oh, well, I, I can't do the full Irish, you know. So I'm like, not a problem. He leaves the bar. He's like, he could have just told me, but he leaves the bar. And he like, he follow, he drives up and I follow him there. And he's like, yep, there you go. Great. You know, he even like takes me to the door. She comes and she goes, oh, I can't uh-huh. do the full. I'm like, I don't need anything. That's no problem. No problem. And she's like, oh, I could, I've got some cereal and juice. How would that be? That'd be, that'd be perfect that'd be great fantastic you know i've been eating the full irish every day and i'm I, yeah I'm, I'm busy and i'm acting. you're gonna turn into a full irish <laughs> so so i'm like not a problem everything and um and uh of course i wake up the next morning and she's got the <laughs> it's me and one other person staying and she's got the full irish out and you know i felt compelled that you have to eat everything of course <laughs> but everybody i swear it was it was just I mean, I I can't. I mean, I've got a smile on my face right now, and every time I think about it, I'm like, "Bless her, she was just, you know, it was just the sweetest thing, you know, you could ever have." That was really just a, a golf course viewing escapade, or did you get some golfing on that trip? Oh yeah, no, I did on the yeah my my 18 day trip. Yeah, no, I played golf and just walked other yeah. ones too. So depending on the day, so okay. But um, yeah, if you're referring okay. to the Dublin visit, the Royal Dublin visit. So I didn't have my clubs with me. I was just, um, cause I was coming back and, um, um, so I didn't play golf. I'd never, you know, having not been there. So I really wanted to see the work, um, to talk with Clates uh-huh. and, and Frank about it and Hendrick and give them sort of some feedback and get an understanding of what was happening and, and what was happening on the site. So, um, you know, that was, that was really awesome. And, um, you know, spent time with the general manager and the course manager and, you know, and Jeff and Alan, at, yeah, that stuff with them, yeah, that would cool. Well, look, I know your egg timer is running down in terms of probably wanting to get out the door, so I've got a couple of last few questions. And as a listener yourself, you know, my guests are asked the same two final questions. The penultimate question for today relates to the Mike DeVries bucket list. This question can be interpreted however you wish. Please let us know the circa five golf courses that appear on your bucket list and tell us why. Um, okay. Ones that I haven't seen, you mean? Well, ones that you have seen or haven't seen, you can interpret the, the, the question however okay. you wish. So either you want to go back to them or you haven't seen them and you want to go well, for the first time. There's lots of ones that always go back to. Um, I'll say, you know, I'll start with the ones that, um, I've never been to Seminole. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and Donald Ross is a, you know, I've worked on a number of his courses and things like that. Um, I know that Corn Crenshaw have done a, you know, have done a restoration of it. 
recently, but I've never been there. Would love to see that um, someday. Um, and obviously, it's a great course. Ben H- Ben Hogan, you know, he's raved about it. Preparation. A um, couple Stanley Thompson golf courses uh, up in the Rockies, uh, Bamp and Jasper, um, would be ones I'd love to see. The hard part with that is, is that they've got more snow than we do right now. And in the middle of the summer, I, if I get home to, you know, home, um, I like to play golf at home and not, not, not travel just to play golf in the middle of the summer. Their season's the same as mine. So that, that's going to be tough. Um, but someday I hope that, um, that I do that. Um, overseas, I'd love to get to Macrahanish. I've, I've never made the journey down the Mulligan Tire, and that would be um, and Frank's. Frank's a member, isn't he? Yeah, so you'd, yeah. you'd have to you'd have to address yeah. that. <laughs> it's all Frank's fault. Um, yeah, yeah, let's just blame Frank. <laughs> it's your fault, Frank. But um, you know, everything I've ever heard, that's a really uh, amazing place. Uh, would love to do that. Um, I've never seen any any golf in in Japan, um, and um. Hirono is supposed to be, you know, incredible. Um, but, you know, that's a that's another busy sort of thing. Um, and I haven't been, you know, in Australia, I've spent a lot of time in Australia. I've never been to Royal Adelaide. And um, and my wife and I, were we were slated to go to Adelaide uh, about a year ago. And um, we're in the plane. We're on the runway in Hobart, <laughs> ready to take off. And then they go back to the gate and somehow they had, they were getting timed out and getting into Adelaide. And so they canceled that and they were going to go through Melbourne and would have to stay overnight in Melbourne and then, then go to Adelaide. It was like, I was going to have like, we were going to have a half a day in Adelaide by the time this, this whole journey got fixed and we just went back home. We, we canceled the trip. So I haven't been to Adelaide yet and I really want to see Royal Adelaide because it's, you know, was uh, impacted by Mackenzie, and um, yeah, and I'm a huge Mackenzie fan, obviously, uh, with Crystal Downs and all the stuff. So I'd really love to do that. I've I've won up on you there, in so far as I spent six or seven glorious days in Adelaide playing Royal Adelaide in January 2020 before COVID yeah. kicked off. If you're ever going, you need to let me know because I need to hook you up with. A mate of mine who's the international sales director for Torbreck Winery in the Barossa. Always good stop there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll give you Andrew's uh, contact details, and he will make sure that you have a have an enjoyable time at the at the Torbreck Winery. It's uh, we tasted everything, which was just wonderful. To be fair, the six to seven hundred dollar bottle of wine was kind of a little bit lost on me. Everything up to that point was great. Well, my wife doesn't play golf. Amazingly. Um, she grew up playing tennis, uh, but she would, I think she would be up for the wine visit too. So, well, well, it hold me to that. I'm, I'm happy to share Andrew's details with you. As far as like courses that I always enjoy returning to and stuff, um, you know, those are sort of ones that I haven't seen that are really kind of on my bucket list. Um, and also on there would be, um, anything around Paris, Morfontaine and Chantilly, uh that those i'd like to see those um but then ones that i that i talk about you know to go to um that have special memories for me 
um, that I think that are sort of under the radar for a lot of people and not necessarily for everybody. But um, in north central Wisconsin, there's um, there's Lawsonia. There's two courses there. The Lynx course is an old Langford and Moreau course. It's probably their preeminent work. Uh, Ron Force has done a bunch of mm-hmm. restoration work um, over the years on it. And then most recently, uh, Craig Haltom, who was involved with all the stuff at Sand Valley, um, has sort of done some stuff for them and manages it um, that does the, um, from afar, does the uh, maintenance of it. Um, it's a really amazing place. Um, it's so good that the first time that I was there, I knew a lot about the golf course, but the first time I was there was with an, an old, old friend of mine who was the assistant pro at Crystal Downs when I grew up and I was the kid in the, in the bag room. And Mark is the pro up at, um, at Marquette Golf Club where I did gray walls. And their original golf course was Langford and Moreau. And I said, and it had been greens had trunk and it was a, you know, it's, it's now, we're sort of reclaiming it now, but it was sort of a, a shadow of what it once was. And I said, you need to go to Lawsonia. You need to see this. Let's go down. And we were in the middle of the third fairway and I had a seven iron in my hand and, and we're looking at these historic dairy barns right next to the hole and this green perch with this drop off on the right and this bunker there. And my heart was pounding so fast. I physically could not pull the club back to swing it. I had to step away from the ball and Mark was like, you know, what's wrong? And I'm like, I, I feel like my heart's about to explode. I'm going to have a heart attack because this is so cool. <laughs> and the same thing happened on the fourth tee. And, and, you know, Marcus was like, well, what, you know, it's like, what is, this is so amazing. Can, are you starting to, you know, cause he couldn't see it yet. Like you still can't, haven't figured out how cool like your old golf course is. Cause everyone thought, oh, well, it's only 6,200 yards. And, you know, it's just kind of this old pasture and, you know, they, it's really spectacular, the original. So, Lawsonia's links is is always this amazing place that I have these great memories of. And um, uh, Belvedere is one of those that, you know, we talked about earlier, which I think is really cool. Um, over in, in, um, in Scotland, Western Gales has some of that. To me, I've only been there once. This was like 25 years ago. And, um, and it was just a miserable day. It was, you, you want to talk about bad weather. Okay. It's, it's low forties temperature wise, you know, Fahrenheit and it's blowing sideways, raining hard. We have full rain gear on. It's, 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 it's coming sideways at you. And it was one of the, you know, <laughs> They're in there. They're like, you really want to go play? And I'm like, yeah, I want to go play. So, so we go out. Our member that was our, was hosting us, um, the guy that was traveling with me and, an, and another guy. And, um, and we get to the sixth hole. And they're telling me, you know, about each hole and stuff as we're doing it. We're sitting up there. I hit the one iron down into the fairway. Three iron as hard as I could. Another three iron as hard as I could. Um, and um the green's sort of set in this hollow and there's a little ridge in front and then there's sort of a there's an approach hollow and so this ridge is between me and the pin the pins maybe only 15 feet on the green and and i had to, and i'm sitting there in three and i've got to try and figure out how to get this up and down to make 
you know, on a short par five, but the wind is and the rain is really, really difficult. And and I hit this little shot, goes about 12 feet past. I make the putt. I swear it's the greatest five I've ever had in my life. You know, so this, I mean, it was just like, you want to talk about bad weather. I mean, it was, it was horrible weather. And it was one of the most memorable rounds I've ever had. And, um, you know, we all like, you know, we probably were the only guys that played that day. Maybe somebody else went out too, you know, crazy like we were, but, um, um, there's this thing of like, yeah, we weathered the storm. We did this. We had this great time. We were laughing and, you know, we, we got done and, and parts of you were wet and parts of you stayed dry miraculously underneath your rain gear. And, you know, the, the pint tastes pretty good after that, you know? So, um, yeah, so us. that's, those are some really great places that, that I find just that are really fantastic. And in Australia, I would say, I always enjoy going back to Victoria Golf Club. They're a very welcoming place. Um, they have some great dormies there that are just simple. Um, they just they treat you really well. It's a fantastic golf course. Clates, of course, um, did the restoration there. Uh, it's super, super fun to play. Um, I'll reserve a fifth one for some other time. No problem. I'll have to have you back on, so. And you're always welcome. So, so the f- final question relates to two b- golf book recommendations for listeners who may be considering augmenting their personal libraries. Um, so many, so many good ones. Um, you know, being a McKenzie guy, I'm, um, I'm, you know, I still like, I still like his 1920 golf architecture or sort of the expanded version on that, you know, um, about St. Andrews, but, um, the spirit of St. Andrews, um, uh, those, you know, those are great primers. There's good stories in them. They're quick reads. Um, there's a lot of good information in there if you want. Um, you know, those are really fantastic. Uh, you mentioned the McKenzie reader that Josh had put together. You know, if you're really into McKenzie, you can, you can delve into more of that type of stuff. Um, so I tend to like the old, the old books. Um, but a lot of those are coming back. Um, and so, um, Paul Daly's golf architecture series, um, he's Paul's, you know, he's a, he's a publisher, writer, um, compiler, um, who gathers essays. Um, he's got a series of books there and there's a lot of different stuff in there. Um, some of it great, some of it, you know, maybe less interesting for certain people or whatever. Um, but things you can pick and choose and look at stuff and, um, it, yeah, there's a lot of stuff and I think they're really well done. There's good photography in them and stuff too, um, which is really neat. Um, it's, it's hard to stop it too. I don't, I don't know how you do that. My life, my it's library keep going. is it's a, it's a loose, it's a loose too. <laughs> Read? Who reads? Who actually turns pages? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anymore? I mean, correct. Well, you know what? There are a few of us Luddites out there. And just apropos, I wholeheartedly concur with your remarks regarding Paul Daly's Golf Course Architecture, A Worldwide Perspective. I've just actually received volume seven in the post from um, Mr. Daly himself. 
to complete uh, for the time being my my set of seven, which is which is great. And I will stick a, a link to his website and and Josh Pettit's website in the in the show notes. But no, it's it, it's a loose it's a loose too, Mike. If you have another few you wanna you wanna mention, far away. Well, um, George Thomas's Golf Architecture in America and Robert Hunter's The Links, both from I think nineteen twenty seven. Um, those are, you know, great old texts that, that, um, cover stuff. Um, and then Simpson and Weatherids, um, you know, their, their tome right from around that time too is, you know, Gary's on some other stuff is really cool. Um, the great thing about the links was, um, just to swing this back to sort of the beginning of our conversation with Crystal Downs is Walkley Ewing, the founder of Crystal Downs. They built a nine-hole uh, course before Mackenzie got there. And Eugene Goble, who was a park planner in Grand Rapids, where Walkley Ewing grew up and was living at that time, um, he designed this rudimentary nine-hole golf course uh, for him on what is basically the front nine, or some of the front nine, in a, in a bit of um, holes 10 and 18, at Crystal Downs now. And he had this, and then he read Robert Hunter's The Links and wrote Hunter and said, told him about, you know, this place and said, you know, who would you recommend? Because I think we have the opportunity to do something here that's a little bit better than what we have. Um, and um, Hunter wrote him back and said, well, the best is Dr. Alistair McKenzie. And he's about to head back to England, and I think I could convince him to, you know, see it on his journey back. And um, um, unbeknownst, I think, to Walkley Ewing, that Robert Hunter was his partner in, in California. <laughs> he's telling him to talk to my partner. Um, but nonetheless, um, that's what got Mackenzie there. Um, so that's a great read, and um, you know, personally a favorite, and you know, led to my journey. So that might have to be number one on the list, maybe. <laughs> was that was that the first one you read of the one you uh, No, M Mackenzie's, would, M Mackenzie's would have been the first one I read. But I mean, it, it, it's right up there with mm -hmm. it. And, you know, learning that later, just sort of the history of it and stuff, it's kind of, it's, it's sort of interesting how all of this stuff is interrelated. And, um, and, you know, it goes back to these, these little bits and pieces and, you know, if this didn't happen or that didn't happen, you know, would I have, would my family have been going up to Crystal Lake for, since um, 1916, when my great grandfather first went up there, you know, I wouldn't have been exposed to Crystal Downs. I wouldn't have been exposed to golf. I wouldn't, I, I might be doing something totally different, you know, who knows. Um, but that had a huge influence and, um, so, thank you, Mr. Hunter, for for influencing Mr. Ewing. Indeed. And Mr. DeVries, thank you very much for your work uh, on behalf of us golfers uh, around the world. It very is much appreciated. Safe travels prior to your departure to Hobart on Wednesday. And I'm sure I'm speaking for all my listeners when I say we look forward to seeing those pictures drop as and when Mr. Goggins squeezes them out. <laughs> well, thanks. It's been really fun, Shane. And... Um you're going to have to get to Michigan to play and you haven't been here to play. So, um, 
you've 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 got an invitation and you need to you need to take me up on that that would be that would be good fun well thank you very much thank you very much it's 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 right that's very kind of you i must rectify that situation at some point but i have to say i have to get back to australia first and i have to get back to holland first and i have to get back to the uk a few times so after that I promise you, I'll look you up and look you up. So many places and not enough time, right? Well, there you go. There you go. And and I need to to attend the day job as well to make sure I can pay for these things as well. So would that podcasting were lucrative. It's not. (laughs) (laughs) Don't out of the love of it more more than anything else, uh, Mike. Listen, uh, thank you very much for your time and safe travels on your your onward uh, travels to Australia. Thank you. Much appreciated. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.